Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is episode 101, for those of you who have been counting Uh, And uh, we have with us today a full house, part of our special celebration this week of having hit the milestone of our uh, centennial episode uh, a a little earlier in the week. And joining us, we have, of course, Corey Shockey in London, England at double I double S and (laughs) in what? Yes. And there she is. But by her signature lap. And and in Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. We have Sam Vinograd, who's national security analyst at CNN. We have David Sanger of The New York Times. And in New Haven, Connecticut, we have a new guest. We're delighted to have her on, Asha Rangappa, who is a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute of Global Affairs, where she teaches national security law. Um, and I want to explain exactly, you know, I mean, I've seen Asha on television. She's really, really good. But the thing that I found most interesting is that she and Sam seem to have this French fries and wine thing going on. And Everybody and, and needs I, advice. And I was like, man, that should be a podcast. You guys should have a podcast called French fries and wine. Um, We're working where, on at it. minimum, we should get invited to the party. Yeah. Definitely. Exactly. Well, we'll you're invited. We'll, we'll produce it. This is, I mean, it's a fantastic idea, but it also suggests that your priorities are straight. Um, and just, you know, as a way of welcoming you on board, Asha, what has got you drinking the wine this week? Oh my goodness, I don't even know where to start. Uh, I think really the uh, Giuliani has me drinking all the time because. On the one hand, he makes several (laughs) uh, outrageous legal arguments. And to be quite honest, David, the lawyer in me also cringes because I feel like the president deserves, you know, a competent defense. (laughs) Um, And and I I don't even know. That's just that's just crazy talk. Well, you know, like, let, let, let's give the guy, you know, I don't know why he's chosen this particular person to be his spokesperson on the legal front, because he's not helping maybe, him maybe at all. Maybe he's trying to preserve his ability to argue if he's ever indicted that it was ineffective assistance of counsel. I think he would have a very good claim there. <laughs> there we go, Rosa. <laughs> Yes, uh, our other, there's the associate dean of the Georgetown Law School giving some legal advice to the president. I love the fact that both of you are so dedicated to him getting um, a good defense, um, uh, which you probably- That's a pillar Yes, David. Yeah, well, that's- Even idiots are entitled to competent defense. No, that's- that's, Yeah, I'm I'm an outlier here. I think some of this is on purpose. 
I think Giuliani, Giuliani goes on TV and doesn't help the president, but he was on the other day and he said that he's going out there to try to shape public opinion. That sounds like a propaganda legal strategy to me. And every time I listen to him, I feel like we're listening to something that the Russians should be saying as part of their information warfare campaign. And it's, instead, it's coming out of the lawyer's mouth, uh, out of the president's lawyer's mouth. So I wonder a little bit how much of this is Giuliani being crazy and how much of this is a purposeful strategy to kind of gaze and confuse the American public. Okay, Can so I offer really an alternative sweet thought? That, that you think it's separate from Russia's strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to offer an alternative view, which is that this isn't really a legal strategy at all. It's completely a political strategy. Giuliani sort of showed his hand the other day when he said, in the end, this is all about impeachment, if impeachment happens. So that's why they're busy denigrating the uh, Mueller and every other one of their opponents out there because they realize that in the end, this is a political judgment. And he, he has been brought on as a political advisor who just happens to have a law degree. Well, he's taking a risk, though, right? Because he's really counting on an interpretation of the Constitution by the Office of Legal Counsel that a sitting president can't be indicted. I, I mean, that's far from conclusive. Um, and there are actually many, or there's, there's a few reasons why Mueller, if he has the evidence, might actually try to recommend an indictment because that would trigger a bunch of things that would force his findings to become public. Um, and I can explain why. Um, it's uh, the Rose, he does not have the authority to produce a public report. Um, he's, it's not the independent counsel statute. He can only give his findings to Rod Rosenstein. If Rod Rosenstein says no to anything that he recommends, he then has to turn around and report to Congress. So, if Mueller makes a recommendation for indictment, Rosenstein presumably would say no, uh, because that's currently the Department of Justice policy, and that would trigger the release of the report. But it would probably also trigger some litigation over whether that, in fact, is the correct legal standard. Um, well, and who so litigates? Giuliani, my point is that Giuliani may be making a legal assumption that is far from settled. So the other thing that seems to be coming up here is that, uh, you know, the president has asserted this uh, power to uh, pardon himself, which does seem to, you know, go against every constitutional principle uh, that exists. Corey, you're living in a country that still has a king or a queen um, <laughs> and, a, a, and, a, and, a, and, you know, uh, you know, still has a monarchy. Uh, but even in that monarchy, and even you know, uh, for the past couple of hundred years, this kind of an idea wouldn't have stood, really, would it have? And uh, yeah, not since Runnymede, when the Magna Carta was signed and the nobles forced on the monarchy responsibilities and some accountability, uh, which presumably we are the Enlightenment era heirs to in our sweet country. I'm the only. I'm the least qualified person in this conversation to talk about the legality of it, but it does seem to me crazy that that the president could assert that the law of the land in no way applies to him. I'd love to hear the lawyers on the calls on our in our conversations take on this because it seems to me prima facie lunacy 
that he could pardon himself and that the law of the land doesn't apply to him. Well, let me let me go back to Asha then for a second, and then we'll we'll carry the conversation forward in a little bit more of a national security direction. Um, uh, since uh, Rosa is off parking her car, whatever she's doing at the moment, Asha, what's your take on this? Well, again, we are in uncharted territory, and these are unsettled questions, uh, probably because we've had we've been wise enough to elect people who didn't raise these questions, and our favors and didn't anticipate that we'd ever go here. I think with the pardon, um, you have two things going on. On the one hand, the Constitution is virtually limitless on the pardon power, so you have to kind of go to the concept of the pardon and its history, which is coming from the you know, royal prerogative to grant mercy. And, you know, there is some case law that suggests that a pardon has to be delivered to be valid um, and that there is a grantor and a grantee. And, you know, it would effectively put the president above the law if he could, you know, commit whatever crimes he wants and simply pardon himself uh, before he leaves office as a way of immunizing himself. That would be very much against exactly what um, you know, the kind of tyrannical authority that the framers intended for the president. So I think that this is not something that the president or Rudy Giuliani, again, because I think he was the one who articulated this as well, want to hang their hats on. I don't think this one will be uh, something that ends up coming out in their favor. Um, Can you guys hear me? I parked my car. Oh, there's Rosa. Uh, she should answer this. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we can, Rosa. We've been talking about pardon power. Do you want to offer any comments? I do. I do. Um, I, do. Uh, I mean, obviously, there should be clemency for unlawfully parked cars. But other than that, no, Ash is completely right. Um, it, it, it's totally inimical to the founding values. The whole point of the American Republic was to say nobody's above the law. The Constitution does give the president the, the, the pardon power, but it also says the president's fundamental first duty as the executive is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and presumably pardoning people, including himself, for violations of those laws at a certain point is is contradictory to that. That being said, you know, the fundamental issue, there's a there's a legal saying, no remedy, no right. And what that basically means is it's meaningless to talk about having a legal right to something if there is no effective remedy, that it's it's just it's just rhetoric then. And, and I think this is a similar situation. The, when we're talking about the misdeeds of the executive, we are, as Asha said, uh, to extend her nautical metaphor, you know, we're in uncharted territory heading into stormy seas. And, and you know, the, if the president were to pardon himself, what would happen is the question you have to ask yourself. Who could force him to, who, who could have the authority to say you can't do that and coerce him into going along with it. The answer to that question is, well, it depends. You know, it depends whether Congress acts like they care or not. It depends whether the American people act like they care or not. It depends whether the judicial branch decides to act like they care. And if they all decide that they don't really care or that they just want to wring their hands and say, gee whiz, he really shouldn't have do that. You know, we disapprove, but we're not going to do anything. Then he gets away with it. Uh, you know, that that's there. There is no remedy. It's the it's the old apocryphal Andrew Jackson uh, claim saying to Chief Justice Marshall uh, when Chief Justice Marshall ruled against him in an Indian land rights case, saying 
you know, Justice Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Essentially, you and what army? Uh, and the president has the army, so unless the rest of us decide to care, he gets to do what he wants to do. Yeah, well, I, that is a kind of a troubling thing, but I think all the points, the points Asha made at the beginning and these points, all suggest to the fact that the president and his team think that this is a political issue. And if they think it's a political issue largely, they think that they're going to get cover from the GOP. Certainly that's been the, the, the situation so far. And there have been some recent midterm elections that have suggested that the American people are not like rushing in judgment against Donald Trump. It seems like we're pretty much where we were. David, you've been following this kind of thing for, I don't know if you followed the the the, the, the recent round of uh, 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 primaries very closely, but it, but it seems to me that there is no evidence yet that the American people are sort of rising up and saying, this shall not stand. We, we will not tolerate this behavior in our president. Uh, certainly not. I, first, I just wanted to make the point that that uh, Corey raised Runnymede, and that would have made a really great podcast the week after Runnymede, don't you think? No, it, yeah, no, it would have made it. And I got to tell you, it's been a great, it's been a great week. We've been getting all of these wonderful tweets of support from all of the deep state nerds, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit later. But the, they go into paroxysms of joy the farther back in history. <laughs> yeah. Which, which I, I thought I thought I thought that Corey took us back. I, you know, I, she took us back so so far back that I can't even make like old jokes about you, David. So yeah. um, thank you. <laughs> okay, well, let me Corey. just say how much I love our deep state radio nerds who that's are it. there that's for it. me when I go to the 18th century or sooner. But oh, now, no. un unlike um, unlike Sarah Sanders, I should actually answer your question. You, right? you should, but I do want to say one thing, and that is, Corey, I caution you against making any, you know, sort of reference to, you know, Babylonian cuneiform or something like that, because people will die. They will just pass out out of joy of, you know, you making references to prehistory. Um, so try to try to contain yourself. Now, David. So. Um, a couple of interesting things. When you look at some of the primary numbers, for, forget who won and who lost, and it was relatively uh, predictable outcomes. I was surprised that the turnout wasn't significantly greater uh, than, say, 2014. So, in fact, the turnout in California was less than in 2016, which, of course, was a presidential year. So a lot of people are coming to the uh, polls anyway to vote for president and they vote down ballot. But it was only up a little over 20% over 2014. And that tells you that there's not quite as much, you know, outrage, throw the bums out, whatever that you had, uh, that you might expect if you were going to cocktail parties in, say, you know, New York or New Haven or London. Um, not to suggest that anybody out here at the uh, on the on the uh, on the podcast goes to such parties, of course. Um, so, and that's California, you know, the most anti-Trump state there is, and I think that suggests that you know, for all of what you hear constantly uh, on cable TV, on you read on the front pages of papers, people are not yet you know, taking to the streets. And I think Donald Trump may have once again accurately gauged what was going on. And you saw that to some degree with the Philadelphia Eagles event. 
yesterday, which, you know, was ridiculous on the one hand because he said it was about um, not standing for uh, the national anthem. Well, that was the, nobody took a knee on the Philadelphia Eagles. But the entire thing was a play to the base. And clearly his bet is that that base will overcome again. Well, Sam, you know, I, I, we're going to switch a little bit to talk about North Korea in a, in a second. But just following up on these elections, you know, as somebody who's tracking national security, a couple of the names that have come up uh, in national security terms are Devin Nunez and Dana Rohrabach are out there in California. Jesus. And God yeah, help exactly. Us. Yeah. exactly. And it somehow people are still voting for these dudes. I, it's like inconceivable to me um, uh, how, how this could possibly be happening. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on it. Uh, my thoughts are that if that happens, I am moving to Canada. But I, if they get elected, I think part of this is a messaging problem. I think that we know that the president is really good with coming up with words that helps his buddy, Devin Nunez in California, stay popular. You know, you throw out words like conspiracy or phrases like 13 angry Democrats, and that obviously is resonating with the president's base and not just voters in California, but his numbers aren't going down. And I think the problem is that we as, as Democrats, I'm, uh, I'm saying not folks on this call, but as a party, I'm a Democrat, haven't figured out how to speak to voters in a way that explains that all this going on is bad for them and why abusing the legal system and why, you know, putting in place tariffs that make our friends really, really upset and make our friends work with China and even work with Russia on countering the stuff that we're doing, why that's bad for everyday Americans. And so it is a national security issue, but it's also just a political messaging issue. And I think that we're failing at that. But Corey, just again, right before we turn this over to North Korea, how do these Republicans, I mean, you're a Republican, you know Republicans, how can there possibly be a place in a party for a place like somebody like Devin Nunez, who besides being an idiot, I mean, just, you know, a complete idiot, is is clearly actively trying to obstruct justice in his role in the Congress. And, and, so, and yet no one's, you know, treating him like a leper as they should be. Uh, so let me suggest two things, David, uh, neither of which I intend to be exculpatory for Devin Nunes or the Republicans who support him. Uh, but one of my very favorite commentators on American life is the former poet laureate Robert Pinsky. And, and he says that American culture, as he has experienced it, is so breathtaking and sometimes brutal that it, defines stand, it defies standard models. And I think part of what Republicans are experiencing is a belief that, that in lots of ways, the guardrails and regulation and political correctness, confines of American culture as it has progressed in the last 20 years are ways that are taking us away from the dynamism and opportunity and economic growth 
that helps solve a lot of our other problems. So I think you don't just have to be an idiot or a Russian spy or a bigot to think maybe Donald Trump and Devin Nunes, crazy as they are, um, explosive as they are, might be breathtaking and brutal ways to open up the opportunity for a different path. And I think that's how some Republicans get to it. The other way that I think some Republicans get to it, and again, let me emphasize for the 12,857th time that I am not one of them, um, is the the belief that, you know, there, there are actually a lot of, there's a lot of seediness, a lot of cronyism, a lot of behavior of the kind that rep- that Democrats are outraged about, about the Trump administration, that Republicans believed they saw um, in in Democratic uh, swim lanes as well. That's how I think they explain it to themselves. Again, I don't agree with the judgment, but I think that's how they explain it to themselves. By the way, when you said an an idiot, a Russian spy, and a bigot, I immediately thought, oh, Nunez, Rohrabacher, and Trump. It was... (laughs) It was kind of a. <laughs> it's like oh, I... Larry Curly and Mo. There yeah. they are. Yeah. Okay. I, I do. Oh. I do think. Yeah. I just wanted to jump in real quick on on one thing that Corey that just said. Um, you know, far be it for me to to praise Ben Rhodes, um, uh, who, as you all know, has a book out. Um, but but you know, he he said one thing that I think is absolutely right. That I think it's important for. Democrats to keep in mind, which is that Trump's critique of Hillary Clinton is essentially the same as the Obama campaign's critique of Hillary Clinton in 2008. And if the Democratic response to Trump's election um, ends up being, oh, Hillary Clinton is a martyr and a savior, um, and we just need to double down on doing exactly what the Clinton campaign was doing in 2016. We just should have done it sort of more and a little bit better. That is going to be exactly the wrong response. I, I, I think, you know, there ironically, there are ways in which the very same wave that propelled Barack Obama into the White House uh, propelled Donald Trump to the White House, uh, you know, eight years later and with far more devastating consequences for American democracy. Um, but but Corey is is right that 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 palpable sense of frustration with the system as it is that palpable sense of corruption uh, uh, in the political system um, it's not wrong and it applies to the Democratic establishment as well as the Republican establishment I will say absolutely this is not in any way to suggest that Donald Trump himself hasn't brought us to you know new heights or new depths of depravity here. But right. uh, the Democrats have some changing to do as well. Yeah, well, it's true. And I think, by the way, don't just, you know, focus on Hillary Clinton as, as you know, kind of following that path as the wrong uh, path. Uh, Bernie Sanders would has been, been demonstrated to be the wrong path, too. Um, we, we, you know, we only have, let's say, 20 minutes or so, or so here. And I do want to get to the North Korea thing. And let me start with you, um, David. There's so many facets of this right now. But the one that seems to me to be most striking is the assumptiveness that things are going to be groovy, you know, that 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 everything's going to work out. I mean, 
not only did we have the American president, you know, you know, minting coins, we have the South Koreans putting out books describing, you know, President Moon as the peacemaker. You've got the White House saying, hey, maybe we'll invite Kim Jong-un to Florida, which is like, hey, let's go play golf with Hitler. But, you know, OK, fine. You know, they're thinking of that. And then, you know, we've we've got we've got these you know, these people sort of going over there because it's a party. You know, you've got Dennis Rodman going over there. You know, I saw things saying Sebastian Gorka was going to go over there because, you know, he's the Dennis Rodman of the national security establishment. Unless, of course, Dennis Rodman is the Dennis Rodman of the national security establishment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a kind of a we're, we're kind of it's kind of a bizarre thing. I've never really seen the cart get this far in front of the horse, David. And you've been tracking this for a long time. What do you think? Well, first of all, um, the horse can't even see the cart at this point. OK, they are so far out ahead of themselves. First of all, if you assume everything's going to go well. It's got to be because you've looked at all the previous agreements that the United States has struck with North Korea over the years and said, those went so well, how could this possibly go wrong? You know, that's number one. Number two, you may be able to make things go well if you have totally abandoned all of the requirements that you had earlier about what would have to happen here. So let's review just for a very quick moment what had to happen. We had a previous Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. Remember him? He's probably one of our listeners now. Um, who uh, made the case? Yeah, we'll send you Rex. If you just send us a tweet, we'll send you a mug. That's it. He he, he gets one. In fact, we'll all sign <laughs> it for him. Um, uh, and uh, so Tillerson said in Seoul on his first trip that it would not be enough merely for the North Koreans to suspend their nuclear tests and their missile tests, because that would simply enshrine their current capability. Okay, right now, we don't have any indication that they've even gone as far as made a commitment about extending the suspension that has apparently been in place de facto since uh, November. We had the current Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, say that the North Koreans had to agree to a comprehensive denuclearization with a schedule before they'd even get the meeting back on. Well, they've gotten the meeting back on, and we have no evidence of a comprehensive uh, agreement of any kind. Maybe they're keeping it secret. Who knows? Somehow they've managed to talk the, the uh, summit around from being about denuclearization to being about a peace agreement. Now, I'm not, I've got no problem with replacing the Korean armistice, which has been in place since 1953, with a peace agreement. But as a matter of negotiating strategy, and I realize I'm no expert on this compared to the the president, um, that huh. I'm not sure I'd huh. want to. I'm not sure I'd want to. I'd want to give away my peace agreement uh, here before I understood what denuclearization steps were going to take and make the peace agreement at the far end of that, make an agreement for the agreement to be there, but actually to have the weapons turned over on a schedule. <sighs> That there's only one test here for Donald Trump, and that test is complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. I don't think it's an achievable test, but it's not my test. It's his test. It's the one they talked about for a year. And um, so they have to get to that. And not only that, they have to show the world that they've gotten more out of the North Koreans than Barack Obama got out of Iran. Because otherwise, you couldn't possibly explain how the Iran agreement was a terrible agreement. Now, I do that's, have to give 
I do have to give Trump credit for the fact that he's actually gotten engaged, that we've had seen more diplomacy with the North Koreans than we've seen in 10 years. It's at a high pace. That's all great. But he's got to show he's not going to get played. Okay, so let me break this down into some component parts as we're sort of in the, you know, given our, our, our time constraints, but also wanting to get to everybody. Sam, um, you know, I first got to know you when you're in the NSC and you're an NSC expert. And one of the weirdest things that's happened in the middle of this is that we have this brand new national security advisor at John Bolton. And it appears that he was totally turfed out of the visit of the North Koreans um, to this thing. And there's some question about whether he's been totally turfed out of this North Korea process because he's seen as somebody who wants to uh, try to blow it up, and this is the opposite of Pompeo. And so this new team seems to be as dysfunctional or more dysfunctional than the old team. And there's actually been some speculation that Bolton won't even make it as national security advisor for another, you know, as long as another month or two, because this so compromises him. And I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Well, what I want to know is, is he going to Singapore? I don't think we've heard about that, but there's this meeting, gosh, when was it last week, with that very, very large letter that the North Koreans gave to President Trump, and Bolton wasn't allowed in the room. And I thought to myself, I can't think of a single meeting the president had with a foreign counterpart that didn't involve his national security advisor, at least his deputy, because guess, guess what? That's part of his or her job. They're there to advise the president in these situations and to represent the entire interagency process that they're supposed to run. And so it's interesting because Bolton was originally hired because of his extremely hawkish views on North Korea. He's written about this. He's been on Fox News talking about this. I mean, he wanted regime change in North Korea. And now, ironically, he's literally and figuratively not being let in the room because, guess what, he wanted regime change in North Korea. So what the president originally hired him for is no longer what the president feels he needs. So he's shutting him out. And I think the problem is, optically speaking, obviously this undercuts Bolton and neuters him a little bit uh, when it comes to his ability to perform his job with other foreign counterparts if they don't think that he has the president's ear. But if you just have your chief diplomat in the room, let's say they go to North Korea, Pompeo's sitting next to the president, Bolton's like somewhere at the end of the table, maybe on like a kitty chair or something. To me, that sends a message that we're putting most of our eggs in the diplomacy basket. And it undermines our, our deterrent capacity on all these other options that are supposedly still on the table. I mean, Jim Mattis was at the Shangri-La Dialogue a few days ago and talked about the fact that we're not you know, changing our posture on pressure. Um, the president said he doesn't want to call it a maximum pressure campaign. If Bolton's not around when we're talking to the North Koreans, I think it makes it look like we're really all in on diplomacy and we're not as focused on all this other stuff. Um, well, that's, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I can't, I have to say, um, I, can't, I, I can't think of a nicer guy for it to happen to. Um, and, uh, you know, Am I allowed to say that? You could, Yeah, you're allowed to say karma's a bitch. But, and, you know, I mean, if 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 Bolton, who was dedicated to blowing something up on his, his, his you know on his way into the office, ends up blowing himself up, you know what? That's 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 pretty good karma. Um, <laughs> um, Asha, 
you know, as I look at this and, you know, I mean, you approach these things and you've been sort of deeply down in the weeds of looking at this case against Trump. One of the things that strikes me about this North Korea summit is that it's not for Trump about the North Korea summit. Um, you know, the existential threat is not a nuclear threat. The existential threat he's worried about is Mueller and that he is trying to play this North Korea thing so that he gains the political momentum that provides him with the kind of umbrella of cover in the Congress and with voters that protects him from Mueller. And I just, I mean, you you know how these processes work. You even know have met Mueller. You, what's your what's your take on that strategy? Because I, to me, it seems you know the 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 easiest explanation for all the flaws in this process that David just described is because this is Trump trying to do something political and not actually trying to care or not actually caring that much about the specifics of 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 the North Korean nuclear situation. Well, I mean, I agree that he probably doesn't care about the substance of any issue more any farther than how it reflects back on him, right? So if you are profiling Trump, if you are and you know, if you're an intelligence uh, person trying to see what motivates him, it's very simple. It's not hard to see why, you know, foreign intelligence services would have targeted him. He's quite easy to play because at anything that reflects well on him, he is happy to do and he will, you know, attack or reject anything that does it. Um, so, yes, if he can get any kind of political momentum, I'm, I'm sure he perceives that that will be a boon. And I think if we approach the outcome of the Mueller investigation as being purely political, and that's what it's going to come down to, maybe that's a good strategy. We have to remember that Mueller is right now, he's got his head down. He could care less about what is, uh, or he couldn't care less, I guess, about what is happening with North Korea, about any of these other things. Um, he is methodically and slowly gathering information for his obstruction case and collusion case. There's a shoe that's dropping every other day in terms of foreign contacts, in terms of uh, discrepancies between how people have testified in front of Congress. Uh, Manafort was just caught spying again, <laughs> you know, in violation of his uh, house arrest. I mean, all of these things are going to start building up. And I just don't see how, if there is a compelling criminal case, uh, even if it can't ultimately be prosecuted or indicted uh, while he's sitting, I can't see how anything that he is doing externally, particularly with uh, foreign policy, would, you know, people, how, how that could be ignored. I mean, if there is if there is significant criminal activity, I, I just don't see that. But I'm not a political analyst, so maybe maybe it would. I'm not sure. You, you got to admit, by the way, just as an, an aside, that um, Manafort seems to be going for being convicted on infinity counts of every crime. I mean, <laughs> I think they're just going through the criminal code, and like at this point, he's just, just running up the score. How many things can you do wrong? Yeah, are there bonus mm -hmm. points each time you do something else wrong? It, yeah, I mean, he's good. You know, whatever. Also, the as a, as, yeah. as a, just a, a note, if you read the into the documents, he seemed to think that nobody has figured out how to crack WhatsApp. 
So, David, first thing I want to say is I, I apologize for all those things I've said to you, I've said about you over the years on WhatsApp, because now that we recognize that all investigators <laughs> have been cracking about it, it's, it's all bound to come out, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess one thing to think about with Manafort is that, you know, if his goal right now is less, you know, to, I mean, he's if, if he continues this way, he's I mean, he's going to die in prison. So that's kind of a given. But. I wonder whether he is actually worried about what will happen to him from the Russians if he flips. I yeah, mean, you know, you know I, it's I, not like this is a, a you know a, a a country or intelligence service that is above offing people. I think and that's right. I think he's very he likely indeed, more fearful. Yeah, so I mean for him to continue to try to demonstrate some loyalty or hey, I'm trying to still you know, work for you guys or whatever. Um, I would not. I would not put that aside as a potential strategy because he has a lot to fear. I think if he gives up the goods, I think he has a lot to say. That's why Mueller is putting so much pressure on him. I think he is a linchpin of Russia's operation as far as the campaign was concerned, and you know he has more to fear outside of prison probably than he does inside. If if he gets on the bad side of um, the FSB, yeah. Well, and you know that's a it's a it's a very interesting point because it suggests that just as Trump is sending a message to people like Manafort and others by pardoning people willy nilly or thinking about pardoning people willy nilly to flex his pardon powers, you know, Putin may be doing the same thing by threatening or bumping off people here and there. Um, because, you know, I, I, it's just to me, it's been one of those things. It's like, when is that shoe going to drop? When is somebody going to die in this thing in a mysterious way? And we're all going to wonder, you know, is this Putin? Is this, you know, the FSB? Um, and, you know, that's, you know, that's a, that's another component of this thing. Corey, I wanted to go back to the North Korea thing um, because, while Trump seems to have this as his objective, uh, you know, the political objective, um, the North Koreans actually, you know, have real objectives. They want to get some cash. They're willing to give up a little bit to get some cash. They want to get some status, some stature, and they'd like to get the U.S. to pull back. And although Mattis in in, Sing, in the Shangri-La was saying things like, we're not going to do that, you know, it's not beyond Trump to go and agree to that kind of thing and give him the, some kind of a deal on all of this. Um, he's going to have to give him something, uh, you know, which gets us to, you know, North Korea could do pretty well, right? Oh, I think North Korea has already done pretty well. Simply having a picture of Kim Jong-un shaking the hand of the American president sends the message that he's a legitimate ruler, that North Korea as a nuclear state is a major world power that the United States has to deal with as an equal. And also, that's an gonna enormous... going to make his hands look bigger relative to Trump's, right? So. It's an enormous success for North Korea that the meeting even happens. But I also agree with you, David, that that President Trump could could make any sort of bargain that feels historic to him, including the withdrawal of American troops off of the Korean peninsula, 
uh, in return for a Korean peace treaty. I think David raised the most important point, which is that the president, having said that the Iranian nuclear agreement was wholly inadequate, has in fact trapped himself into producing a better agreement than that uh, from the North Koreans, which is much less fertile ground in which to grow it. And he also, um, you know, has created the impression that agreements that are not ratified by the United States Congress have no legitimacy. So is he really going to get an agreement and is he really going to ratify it through the Congress? I think the answer to, is he going to get a good agreement? No. An agreement better than the JPCOA? No, not likely. And will he get it ratified by Congress? Not likely. And so what uh, where that leaves us is with the president saying, no, look, I'm so much better than that other guy. And and all of the rest of us baying at the moon saying, this is not the right standard. And whether we can get any traction on it is the interesting political question. Another way to look at that political question, David, is imagine the same circumstances in which a Democratic president was going to meet Kim Jong-un. What would you be hearing from Republicans now? You're giving into a dictator, a mass murderer, or so forth and so on, and you, you're not getting anything in Do return. human rights have no place in America's agenda? You're selling out our values. Yeah, yeah well, and, you know, wait, wait till Kim Jong-un gets invited to sleep in the Putin bedroom in, in Mar-a-Lago. Oh. Um, <laughs> well played, David. You know, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be something. And and by the way, you know, Trump wants to meet up with Putin along the way. But, you know, to get, you know, to, this brings me, I guess, because we've run out of time and I've, I've you know, we've had a great sort of full group here conversation. And, and I, I want to come back and have everybody come back and continue it. But Rosa, you know, it, it, it does get back to the core issue here, which is, you know, David's point, Corey's point, those points are all good points if, in fact, Trump's objective is a good nuclear deal with North Korea. But if, in fact, Trump's objective is to avoid losing the House to the Democrats, because that will lead to investigations which, you know, will, uh, uh, you know, be such a huge threat to him, all he's got to do is have something that looks a little bit like a win for his base, maybe set up an appointment to see Kim Jong-un, you know, close to or shortly after the election, keep it going, keep the buzz up in the air, and he gets the win he wants, and he can punt the rest of it um, uh, af after that. And that seems to be the strategy that seems to be the most likely one. No, I, I, I think, unfortunately, that's accurate. Uh, Trump occupies you know, the postmodern era and all the rest of us are, you know, still stuck, uh, you know, in old ways of doing things. So Trump says something that is not true. He says something that he has simply made up. And we all scurry around and the New York Times scurries around and Post scurries around. And we say things like, we have fact checked Trump's claim. And it turns out that that is not true. And his base does not care at all. They think it's, a, you know, they think it's all a plot against him anyway. So all the meticulous work we do to demonstrate that what he said is false uh, makes no difference whatsoever. Um, and my fear is that this will continue, that Trump can say, 
you know, anything can happen in the North Korea summit and Trump will declare victory regardless of the substantive outcome. Uh, and we'll all dutifully start fact checking and saying, but wait, actually, the emperor has no clothes. Uh, and Trump supporters will say, what a beautiful outfit he's wearing. Yeah, and well, I think that's exactly right. And I think, you you know, you put it right. It's, it's, it's post-modern era or it's the post-truth era. Um, but the kind of analysis that we're doing, which seems very reasonable and thoughtful and grounded in past experience, is completely irrelevant so long as he can eke out one vote wins in, in, in enough House seats that you don't all of a sudden start having House committees investigating him or, um, pick, you know, picking up where Mueller left off or, 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 or adding momentum to Mueller. Um, anyway, it's, 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 it's disturbing. Um, uh, it's a very, very curious situation. And by the time next week rolls around, uh, we're going to actually see it unfold with Dennis Rodman and Seb Gorka and the president and his small hands and the big envelope and the North Koreans um, and uh, the South Koreans in there someplace and the Chinese and the Russians on the perimeter. And, you know, Lord knows it's going to be a circus. Um, but I think everybody needs to keep their eye on the objectives of the individual players in that circus and Donald Trump's objectives are not the same as the national interests of the United States or even the objectives of other members of his government. Um, David, I'll be uh, I'll be leaving for Singapore in a few days, and I'm trying to figure out from your description whether it would be more interesting to cover the summit, follow Sebastian Gorka around and see what he's doing, or see what all of the bartenders have to say was uh, what the wreckage was left by the time that Corey was done partying there with the IISS strategic dialogue the other day. Uh, yeah, I'm, you'll find that Corey's picture is up in all the bars and she's not allowed back in them. I <laughs> is Dennis Rodman in the pictures with Corey? That's what I want yeah. to know. Yeah, no, that's, and they all got the same nose ring. But that's another story. <laughs> it's another image we could all probably uh, do without. A whole other podcast. It's a whole other podcast. And there will be many, many more uh, Asha, thank you for joining us. We'd love to have you come back. This was kind Thanks of a so much. Um, uh, uh, Sam, it's always great to have you here. Same David, same Corey, same Rosa. And just let me wrap up by saying uh, the response of everybody out there in the deep state nerd world to the 100th episode was spectacular. We said we'd give out um, uh, 100 T-shirts and mugs to the first 100 people. Uh, and it's got us all very motivated about the next 100 episodes and beyond that. Uh, and with great groups like we had today, why not? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's called for. So thank you, Deep State Nerds. Thank you all of you guys for joining. And we'll uh, see you again next week as this uh, Korean summit begins. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.